Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. Hello and welcome. Today is January 12th, 2015. Can you believe it? And this is The Mixed Experience. It's a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing her mixed thoughts about a mixed up world. And it's the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. I'm your host and a resident mixed chick. My name is Heidi DeRoe and I am African-American and Danish. And today we have a great guest to talk about The Mixed Experience, a really great guest. But first I have an announcement. It's a great announcement, too, because, as many of you know, I run a festival called the Mixed Remixed Festival, and we are seeking filmmakers, writers, poets, performers, visual artists, folks who need to tell stories of the mixed experience in any stripe for our programming and for the complete 2015 schedule. Here's the good news. We have just extended the deadline for submissions until January 30th, 2015. So if you were meaning to get something in and you were running out of time, well, now you have a little bit more time. So I hope you will go to www.mixedremix.org. That double you got away from me almost. www.mixedremix.org and click on artist submissions and submit your work. It's entirely free but it does have to be on time. So make sure you get it in by midnight Pacific on January 30th, 2015. We can't wait to hear more about your work. Then just a couple of other uh, announcements. I'm going back on the road a little bit to do some speaking. I'll be speaking at UC Santa Barbara on March 5th. I'll have details to come on my personal website, HeidiWDeRoe.com. And then I'll be in Amherst, Massachusetts on March 10th. Again, details are forthcoming, but if you are in Santa Barbara or in Amherst, Massachusetts, I'd love to see you and meet with you and have you come out and hear me speak. Okay, today's guest. She's a dear friend. She's awesome. Um, I love her to death. It's Marie Mockett. She's an incredible, incredible writer, and she's just come out with her second book. I have to read her actual bio here instead of just saying she's amazing because when I read it, you'll realize, oh yeah, she is amazing, right. That's what she said. Marie was born and raised in California to a Japanese mother and an American father and graduated from Columbia University with a degree in East Asian languages and civilizations. Her first novel, also excellent, Picking Bones from Ash, was shortlisted for the Sororian International Prize for Writing and it was a finalist for the Patterson Prize. She's written for the New York Times, Salon, National Geographic, Glamour, and other publications, and she's been a guest on Talk of the Nation and All Things Considered on NPR. In 2013, Marie was awarded a fellowship by the NEA and Japan-U.S. Japan Friendship Commission, which enabled her to live in Japan. While there, she was featured in the NHK Japanese National Broadcasting Documentary, Venerating the Departed, which was broadcast internationally several times. She does lots of other cool stuff. She lives in San Francisco now with her husband and son, and she's just come out, again, as I said, with her new memoir called Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye. I am very pleased to welcome Marie Mockett. Hello. 
you. Hi, Heidi. Yay. I'm so glad you could be here. Um, oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I have your wonderful book in my hands, but before we get to the book, we have to start with the initial question, which you've answered many times, but here goes. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> what am I? I don't know. I So I'm half my mother's from Japan, my father was American, and I am someone who is both halves and doesn't have a problem with it, and I'm someone who likes to try to put things together that maybe other people don't think go together, and I'm someone who believes that we all have more in common than we don't, and I try really hard in my work to um, bring things that we think are opposite together because I think that's one of the constructive things in life that we can do to make the world slightly better for everyone. And and you've done this even before you decided on writing as your art and your work and your mission in life, but you, you grew up in a household where you spoke Japanese and English Right. Before that was was cool. (laughs) Yes, yes. And and you grew up mostly in California. Was was that a difficulty at that point? I mean, were you one of the people who, or of that generation, I should say, that had to really struggle with people asking you that question or trying to pigeonhole what your family could be? You know, it's so funny. People ask that question all the time, and uh, and I think my answer varies depending on who I'm talking to. When I'm talking to other people who are um, of mixed origin, as I'm talking now, then I would say, yes, of course, I completely, um, I, I, I definitely had many experiences that were difficult and painful where people said, what are you? They didn't know how to categorize me, and I understand that really uncomfortable feeling. On the other hand, I grew up in California, and I had a comfortable home and a mom and a dad, and so there's a part of me that feels like, especially as I get older, I feel like I can't complain. I can't complain. You know. <laughs> On the other hand, it's really important to give voice to the struggles and the frustrations that a young person has growing up and, and not seeing herself or himself in the media or in stories or represented and then you know, feeling like it's really hard to find a place where your own story matters. So, of course, I struggled with all of that. Um, I think most mixed people do until you're older, and then you can sort of create the community that you want the way that you want it. Um, and then and then maybe some of that um, discomfort dissipates a bit, but it, it is really hard. I think especially growing up in a smaller town where there isn't a lot of racial, racial diversity. Uh, but all things being equal, you know, California does tend to be a very open-minded place, and there are a lot of people from different parts of the world. So it wasn't the most kind of monocultural experience I could have had. Right, yeah. I, I'm interested to always hear about what that experience is like because it does vary in terms of the generations and it varies in terms of geography. Uh, I just had Thomas Chatterton Williams on as a guest last week, and he wrote a memoir called Losing My Cool. He grew up in New Jersey, the son of an African-American father and a white mother, but he was raised, quote-unquote, black. 
but as he's getting older, and he now lives in France, and he has a daughter with a white French woman, he's mm. reevaluating all of right. these identities. And he has a wonderful line in an essay that he wrote for Virginia Quarterly Review. He says, you know, like all politics, all race is local. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I think there's oh, a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Well, and there were funny things. You know, my parents were both artists. They met, they had been opera students in Vienna, Austria, and they ended up in the Monterey Peninsula in California. And they were only going to stay for a few years, they thought, but they ended up staying a lot longer. And so they were these kind of eccentric people who grew their own vegetables. And my, you know, my dad would fix the car if it broke, and they loved the opera. And they were surrounded by people who played golf and who played tennis and you know, had totally different interests. So that was the sort of thing that made me feel um, odd <laughs> in my neighborhood, you know, because my parents did not belong to a country club, did not care about a country club. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad drove this really, really old car until it died, and around me people were buying Mercedes. It was the start of this period of great consumption. So, that, you know, that's the sort of thing that can make you feel, mm, my family's a little bit strange, you know, <laughs> and it's not just it's not just the racial or the cultural makeup. It's that we don't live our lives the way other people do, right? You know? Right. And so, and then, and then, of course, other people can say, well, they don't live their lives the way other people do because they have a funny marriage from the beginning, you know. So, it's interesting how these how how you examine an issue and it becomes very very complex pretty quickly. Yeah, um, I, I, and I think, I, well. But no, now I, no one blinks twice. There are tons of, you know, white guys with Asian women. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody thinks twice about that now. Um, I think it's, it's probably very different everywhere. I mean, I don't think that's a concern. And it, it happens on TV. There was even an Asian guy with a white woman on ABC right. Selfie. So thank goodness things are changing in that way. Yeah. Although the show yeah. did get canceled, but I don't think that was the reason. Um, so <laughs> what I am really interested in as a writer myself, and I know a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are, are writers and, you know, in the process of trying to make their mark in the writing world, how much of your, I want to say, challenges around being mixed, uh, growing up in a mixed family, an intercultural family even, with two languages, how much of that was a, a part of what drew you into being an artist to oh, kind of gosh. have a chance what to a- manifest your true form, at least through words? What a great question. Um, I started out not intending to write about identity at all. Um, my early hero my early model, it's really funny to say this now, was John Steinbeck. <laughs> well, that's uh, your guy. From, that's, he's your geography, right? That is my guy, yeah. He, my favorite novel for years was Cannery Row. Cannery oh, Row, wow. the poem, I think, yeah, a, what is it, a grating noise, a, a quality of light. I just thought it was a shaft of light, a quality of sound or something. It was just a, a beautiful, nostalgic, poetic novel about, quote-unquote, common people, and I absolutely loved it. I loved that, and then I loved East of Eden for this this ambition that that Steinbeck had to capture this um, capture history and to capture California. And these were these were two books that I just really really loved, and 
um, I, I really, really wanted to write something very human and something very um, local and, I think, in my mind, Western, and he was my U- hero. Universal. Universal, Yeah, right? really universal, <laughs> and I, I, it, it didn't occur to me. You know, there was this Japan thing that I had that was, you know, kind of there, um, but I, it, it wasn't something that I was really exploring. And so I spent a long time working on a novel that will never see the light of day that was set in the Monterey Peninsula because I used to have a job in the summers working on Fisherman's Wharf, which I loved. I just loved the people and the, the slice of life and the, the characters from the different backgrounds. Um, and then something changed when I was in my 20s. I Somebody said to me, another writer said to me, I don't understand why you aren't mining more of your personal experience. Um, and I took a step back, and instead of working on a novel, I started to write short stories, and the short stories that I realized that I had to write were about Japan mm. and were about spiritual seeking, which I probably was naturally sort of a spiritually seeking person anyway. Um, and about the challenge of of travel and of another culture and of being exposed to another culture and how that forces you to confront yourself and then when you confront yourself you naturally you know have some kind of spiritual growth etc and so that whole dynamic was something that I started to explore and that I felt was really um, important and something that I really wanted to write about something that I was really drawn to. Um, and then, so then I wrote a bunch of short stories, and then from there suddenly had a novel and realized that I had always been interested in crossing cultures and um, and and in in crossing culture and that you know culture can be race, it can be class, it can be countries. Uh, when you put two things together that seem like they don't belong together, you can always you can very often reveal a truth. Um, and so that's kind of what I've come to think of what I'm trying to do. Wow. Uh, and the marketing, you know, from marketing, it's easy to say, well, she writes about identity, although I, I have never thought of it as being quite so simple <laughs> yeah. uh, myself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, I love the way you say that. Uh, your first book, Picking Bones from Ash, came out, is it already five years ago? Is can you believe it? Yeah. Oh my God! That means my book came out five years ago. Oh no. Oh, no. no. Um, and and then we thought we were going to get another novel from you, but here you are with a memoir as your second book, and it was in part driven by what was a terrible, terrible tragedy that happened yeah. on March 11th, 2011. Tell us what happened that day for you well i i was i was in a stage in life i had a i had a really young child and uh my father had passed away we were extremely close and so i was kind of in a weird kind of limbo and i was loosely working on a novel and all of a sudden, really, really early in the morning, my phone beeped, and I had a text message that came in from a friend saying, I just heard about the earthquake in Japan. It sounds terrible. I'm really sorry. I know how much you love Japan. And I, and I thought, what a weird message. And I finally <laughs> got up, and I turned on the Internet, because we 
didn't really have TV, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, not only had there been this massive earthquake and there had been this tremendous tsunami and, you know, and footage was coming in all the time, but it affected a part of Japan that I've been going to since I was a child. And mm. so, and this part of Japan, Tohoku is kind of remote. You know, most people go to Japan, they go to Tokyo or maybe they go to Osaka. They don't, they don't go up to Tohoku. Um, it's not a part that people commonly know about. It's not a glamorous part of Japan, but then all of a sudden it was all over the news. And I, I think I called my mother. I have no idea what time it was in California. I was calling from New York, and I woke her up, and I said, you know, there's been an earthquake. And she, like me, said, yeah, there's, you know, there's always an earthquake in Japan. Right. And I said, no, this one's really big. Um, and there was a huge tsunami. And, um, and it, the epicenter is not so far from our family. And uh, I think that we should, you should try to call them or, you know, we'll hope that they're okay. And then I sat back like, everybody else did and just watched these stories pour in about towns that were eviscerated or, or, you know, a news crew would show up at like, I think it was this town called Rikuzen Takata and they didn't find anybody there at all. And I was just horrified, you know, that nature could do that. And then of course the, um, there was the trouble with the nuclear reactor, which started up uh, very shortly after that. And that is about 25 miles from where my family lives in in Fukushima Prefecture. So that was shocking. And I sat there and I thought, oh my God, all those times I went to Japan and I had no idea there was a nuclear power reactor near the town that I visited. Oh, how interesting. Wow. It just had never, it just, I just, you know, I just didn't have that level of consciousness. And of course now, it sounds silly to say this because I've been adult for a long time, but now I realize, of course, there are nuclear reactors all over Japan. It's an island. How else was it supposed to power itself? Right. Um, and so it, 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 it just, the entire experience has made me realize just how you know, perilous um, the way that we live can be um, and, and, just, and, and also really just how quickly things can and change. It was a really, really shocking event, I think. I, I know I, that you're an artist by just it's every particle of you because one of your responses obviously was shock and and disbelief and, and grieving, but your other response was this really beautiful essay that was published in the New York Times a few days later. Uh, how did you gather yourself together to you know, I don't the know. Truth, this, this is a funny, this is so there are a lot of people, hopefully there are people listening who want to be writers, and so this is a good teaching moment. Um, I had no intention of writing about the tsunami because I wasn't there, you know, I just was sitting there watching this story, and I had a friend who called and said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm in total shock. That nuclear reactor is 25 miles from where my family lives. Uh, you know, in the early part of, or in the, the middle of the 20th century, I had other family members who were near Nagasaki who survived that bombing. So this is really weird now that I have these two sides of my family that wow. um, have a history with, with the, you know, two places that have had very bad nuclear incidents. Um, and I said, I, the Joban train has been cut off from Tokyo, and I take that train all the time. And and I started to describe what I would see on the train, and I would say, and then you, and then you turn, and then you realize there's the ocean, and you're, and she said, you need to write about this. 
And I said, what are you talking about? She said, this is a good friend. She said, you need to write about this. And I said, but I, I, who's going to be interested in what I have to say? Because in my mind, I was thinking, the stories that matter are the stories of the people who've been through this experience directly. And she said, no, no, you can write a piece that shows how much you love Japan and how shocking it is this incident is for people who also love Japan. And in in my memory, it was like this really long struggle where she kept calling and telling me to write it. And I was like, oh, okay, fine, I'll write something, you know. And then, like, I submitted it to the New York Times, and it went into the slush pile where it was promptly forgotten. And But at the same time, my agent kept calling and saying, oh, sweetheart, this is terrible, you know. And um, that's how New York agents talk. And I said, uh, oh, I, I wrote this piece. And she, my agent literally said to me, oh, sweetheart, they're going to get Ian Buruma or someone like that to write about Japan. And I said, well, I, I'm sure that's true. You know, i.e., they're going to get someone important, right, not you. Um, right. I said, well, that, yeah, I, well, I still wrote this piece, and I submitted it to their slush pile. And she said, she's a good agent. She said, send it to me. So I did. And she read it, and she said, this is wonderful. And then bless her heart, I mean, she spent the weekend working the phone, calling every single person she knew at the New York Times to pull the essay out and to look at it, um, with the end result that it ran on the 14th. So the tsunami was on the 11th, the piece was published on the 14th. Not a lot of time elapsed. In my memory, it was like 10 days or something, you know? <laughs> um, but it, it in, in to this day, when people say to me, that was a really beautiful piece, I have no idea um, where it came from. Uh, all I, I, I could never replicate it. I, I even look at it, and I'm not sure. This sounds this is terrible to say. I look at it, and I'm like, I'm not sure what it is that other people see that they respond to, but it's a lesson oh, in it, how it's about when you love. write something from your when you, right when you write something from your heart when yeah. you really when you you don't have a lot of time. You hear about this all the time. You know how women say like they have babies and then they have to write and they don't have a lot of time and it just all comes together and you hear that and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, it, I've it said is that many that, times. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true when you're under pressure and you just you're like, I just have to access my heart and that's all you have. Sometimes you know it comes together and you create something authentic and I think that that's that's what happened in this case and I've you know it it, it was just. If we're just talking purely in terms of, of quote-unquote career, you know, I just basically had a friend saying, you need to write what you're telling me. And so I did, and then they took the piece. Um, it, and then from there, so many people wrote to tell me how much they loved it and that it captured um, this grief that Japanese people were feeling. Uh, and so, you know, that was very humbling <laughs> to be told that. And this was the, then the genesis of this wonderful new memoir, Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye, which has its right. official release date on Monday, but you can get it right now. Uh, it's out. Yeah. I have one in my hot little hands right now. It's gorgeous. Thank you. So, so then you, you're there with this great New York Times piece, and you decide to go back to Japan to be a witness to what's actually happened. I did, yeah. I had some some journalistic experiences where people asked me to write more about Japan, and, and, I, and I realized there's a way to write about Japan that is loving and is real. And, you know, I've been going to Japan since, well, I think my first trip to Japan, I was two and a half, and I already spoke Japanese. And so um, I can 
it, it's a place that is extremely familiar to me. And most of the pieces that you read about Japan, written by Westerners, are written by people who started going to Japan maybe when they were in their 20s. Um, you know, and they, they went to teach in the JET program. But I realized I could tell a story that was really, really personal um, and really, really um, kind of slightly on the inside, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that and I felt that that was really important because Japan is um, a very old culture, but it's also very different. You know, I mean, it's funny. My husband's from Scotland, and I'll go to the UK, and I'll see things from the UK that are sort of American but sort of not. And you go to Japan, <laughs> there's like there's no relationship. Like everything is very, very, very different. And so that's why there are a lot of news stories about Japan that's, you know, like weird Japan and quirky Japan and there's a lot of that in the news. And I wanted to write a story that was about human Japan and, you know, moving and and sad and like this culture is so old and they have faced numerous tragedies and so they must have some sort of wisdom to share with us when a big disaster happens like a tsunami and like an earthquake and i thought what what is what does this old rich culture have to say and how can i translate it so that it makes sense <laughs> to people back home well you i call it a memoir i guess that's what you would call it but it it's sort of a um it's a travel log in part right. because you travel right. throughout Japan. It's right. uh, a lot about spirituality. It's a lot yeah. about grieving. Um, how did you approach your stay there? And then how did you tackle the writing? How did you know what the story was? Well, with the stay, I mean, I really sort of, it was so funny. I, I went with my mom and with my son. And in Japan, there are no babysitters. And so that, you know, it's not like the United States where I could just find a babysitter to help me when I needed help. So what that meant was I had to ask family in Japan for help. And so then family would say to me, okay, what is it that you want to do? What's your schedule? This is Japan, right? I'm supposed to have a schedule. (laughs) And I would say, I don't don't know (laughs) because – as I ask questions and meet people, I'll want to meet new people. And then I'll, you know, like I just thought I'm going to kind of make it up as I go along because I, I don't know. I've never read a book like this or written a book like this, so I don't know how it's going to unfold. So that was very confusing to everybody. And it, it was, it, it kind of put a lot of pressure on me to constantly figure out ahead of time what I was doing, you know, when I didn't necessarily know. But I would I would meet somebody who would say, if you really want to know what Zen Buddhism is, you have to go to the main temple, uh, which was, you know, founded in the 12th century, and you have to have a letter of introduction, and then maybe you can stay overnight. And so then I would do that. And then while there, I would meet somebody who would say, well, you know, there's an older, weirder form of Buddhism on Mount Koya, and you should go, and you should stay there, and they can teach you esoteric Buddhism, um, and you should do that. And so that was kind of how I made up my travel, was just listening to people and, you know, and saying, like, how do, I, how do I get to the heart of what this culture has to teach me about spiritual growth and about dealing with grief and with tragedy? And at the same time, I had this practical thing at home where I was always trying to figure out, you know, what to do with my kid and what to tell my <laughs> family I was doing. So there was that. Um, and... And I did have the good fortune to meet with a TV producer who early on pointed me in a couple directions and said, you know, you should consider 
going to Mount Doom. And the cover of the book has a picture of Mount Doom on it, and that is the place. It's like the final place where where the dead pause, where dead spirits hang out before they disappear. And for people who are just in really, really intense grief, what we, like in modern Western psychological terms, call complicated grief, people can go and try to intercept the spirit of the dead person one more time and say goodbye. So for a lot of people, it's like the ultimate spiritual pilgrimage. Um, And so I knew that I was going to want to go there, even though a lot of people also said to me, it's really scary to go there. (laughs) I thought I really had to go there. Um, (laughs) And so naturally, I just sort of traveled on up through Japan until I got to Mount Doom and then had some very interesting experiences that I write about in the book. Um, well, and then, and sorry, go ahead. No, please go ahead. I, I don't want to stop you. Go ahead. I was just going to say in terms of writing the book, I came home and I thought, well, I've got, I've got five months to really put this together, to put all of my disparate notes together. And I thought, well, I can't really write a personal memoir about the tsunami, right? Because like I said, I wasn't there. Um, but what I had always secretly thought was I wanted to write kind of a story about what the journey of a soul is. And so I started with the disaster, and then I moved on to describing where the Japanese believe the dead go, and then how they come back, and if we can go see them, and um, when they return to us. And that sort of gave me the spine of the structure of the book. One of the things that really moved me in it was your coming to terms, exploring the uh, an unresolved grief in your own life because your father had passed away. Um, yeah. I don't know how much more I should say about that, but it, I was just so profoundly moved by the way in which you could show how difficult it was to move on, how you hadn't even really recognized how you hadn't moved on, and then to be able to to go into healing. Um, well, you know, there's so, a funny thing that happens whenever there's a massive tragedy, it becomes a new story. And the truth is that there are sad things happening around us all the time, right? And mm-hmm. the fact that so many people died in the tsunami did not mean that people weren't dying after the tsunami and that people weren't dying before that and that people weren't dying in other parts of the world. Um, and so one of the great lessons that I learned from a lot of the Buddhist priests when I was in Japan was, you know, when we talk about Buddhism in the West, there's always this talk about compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what the Buddhists stressed. And literally, literally that means you have to open your heart, you know, and for all people and realize that suffering happens on a really great scale all the time. Um, and I realized, yes, I had been carrying around my grief for the loss of my father, uh, which was an event that really upended my life emotionally. Um, but lots of people have lost people. In fact, it, it happens all the time, every day. And over time, what I came to realize is that rather than that being the sort of thing that made me feel really depressed about life, you realize it is part of the human experience and you know, you have to love people for the experiences that they go through. You have to love the people who you have with you. You will lose them someday. You have to be grateful for the wonderful times that you have with them. 
and have compassion for other people who are going through the same thing as you are. Um, and it 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 was a really uh, it was a I, I'm summing it up so quickly <laughs> in, this, in this verbal answer, but it was a very important, very deep, very maturing lesson to learn um, that. You know, the individual people you love are special and your loves are special, but in some way your particular loss, while it's special, it it also isn't special, you know, because it's happening all the time to everyone everywhere. And when you realize you are deeply connected to so many other people, instead of making you feel like you're not special, it just makes you feel more loving and more, I guess we use the word more present all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. We talk about these things. I, I problems with the term to be present, but it it was a really uh, profound lesson to me. And they have all these amazing little rites and things that they do in Japan that kind of drive home that fact. And the big sort of terrible uh, stereotype of Asians is they're all the same, right? You guys all look the same. I can't tell you apart. Like people have actually said that to me. I don't mean to be rude, but I really can't tell you people apart which I, is funny because oh I, sometimes I, when I'm like in Japan and I'm like, you know, it's funny because, you know, I've been told I look like Brooke Shields, which I totally don't. And I know it's just <laughs> because I have eyebrows and long hair. Like, you know, I look like every other white person when I'm over there, right? So the problem of telling people apart is like, it's not just a problem white people have about Asian people, you know. Um, it's a problem we all have. But so, yes, all Asians are the same. But within the culture there are these beautiful things they do and for example in the book i write about how once a year um people write on paper lanterns the names of people who are lost and who are dead and then everybody goes out and sets them out on the water and so there you are in your own little world remembering who's died who you've lost and you're writing it on your paper lantern then you go out on a boat and you realize everyone's writing on paper lanterns Right, and mm-hmm. even though the rules are you're only supposed to write one name per lantern, people totally cheat and put like ten names <laughs> on a lantern. So there's one lantern, you know, representing like ten dead people. And then like the people who put the lanterns in the water totally know that everyone's cheating, and they look the other way. <laughs> and then they lower the lanterns in the water, and you watch them go in with this paddle, and the sun sets, and all of a sudden the sea is full of paper lanterns, you know, and. It, and you lose track of which lantern was your lant which which lantern with my ten people was mine, and it doesn't matter because now your lanterns at sea with hundreds of other lanterns, and everyone's lost someone, you know, and there they all are clustering together on the water, and it was just like a really powerful visual symbol of of what our experience is when we lose people and how it connects us and how we all want to remember and how we all take this special day to remember. And I thought, wow, I'm really grateful for this culture that reminds us of the power of community and the power of the fact that we share these experiences and that, in fact, you aren't alone. You know, you may feel that your own loss is terrible and personal, and it is, but it also is an experience that other people have shared, and you can talk about it and share it. Or not talk about it, but engage in this in this ritual that makes you feel like it's that it, that you're less alone, and it, it just and they do it every year for you know hundreds of years. I just think it's a very sort of important thing and speaks to the power of old cultures and what we can get from them. Yeah, yeah. What, so, what do you hope that readers will 
get out of this ultimately? Or or who is the reader for this? I mean, I want to answer first. I want to say everyone because they're human, because they have hearts, because they grieve, because they're interested and curious about other people. But maybe you have a different idea about what should people get out of it or who should be reading it? Gosh, I mean, anyone looking for any sort of... (laughs) I mean, it is a very uplifting book, I think, at the end. So I don't shy away from asking hard questions about the process of grieving and of being sad. And I don't, um, I don't, I, I really try not to be trite because that, when I was in the depths of grieving, that wouldn't have helped me. You know, I would like look at a book on grieving and be like, oh, this is just a bunch of Hallmark cards stapled together. <laughs> help, you know? So, I mean, I ask really hard questions and I meet people who are literally, have been driven insane by being sad. Um, but you know, the the question of what do I do when I'm anxious and I'm sad and I'm depressed because life has has changed in a way that I wasn't expecting is a really old problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. really, really like, I mean, I, if I can't get the internet to work or I was driving my car the other day and like it suddenly just quit working and I put it in neutral and coasted to the side of the road. Like somebody from 100 years ago wouldn't have known how to deal with that. But the question of how do I deal with intense grief is a really, really old question. And it means that for hundreds of years, people have written about it, examined it, and tried to find ways to help other people. And if you're in a place in your life where you would like to know what some of those things might be, then maybe this book will be helpful because it does contain, I think, a really uplifting message. And, you know, you ter- you read about terrible things happening in, in the news every day and about terrible things that people do to each other. But there are still really good people who want to help other people and who care about the dignity of the human spirit, right? And it, it's just I try to find some of those people in Japan and – bring their stories and their messages to other readers. Hopefully, I guess, sometimes looking at something from a different angle, like looking at grief through another culture, can feed, can feed you better or you know, feed you in a new way that maybe looking at the same answers to the same questions can't. You say this so well, just speaking extemporaneously, but you say it so beautifully in the book. And so for that reason, if people have listened to this interview and think, Oh, now I've got it. I know what Marie Mockett says. She <laughs> speaks so eloquently. The thing is, she also writes so beautifully. So you have to pick up this book. Uh, Marie, we're run, we've run out of time. I wanted you to read, but here's the good news. Um, you'll be at the Mixed Remix Festival in June, so you still can hear her read. And totally. I'm so excited. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. It's going to be amazing. You're also going on tour starting next week, and yep. if you are in Los Angeles, you're, you're going to be a few different places, uh, Berlin, yeah, I'm in, L.A. Yes, on the 22nd, I believe at 7 p.m. at Broman's in Los Angeles. I can't wait. So excited. A lot of friends down there. Um, in San Francisco on the 20th at 6 p.m., I think at the ferry terminal, and then uh, you can check my website at www.mariemocket.com um, with the event listings. But I'll be in Portland and in Seattle, and then also I'll be in New York and Boston the first week of February. 
make sure you go out and um, support, get your book signed. You're going to want a copy of this. But also, Marie's a really great reader, so um, oh, you don't thanks. want to miss that. She's also on Twitter. You're, you're uh, at Marie Mockett on Twitter. And is there anywhere else people should look for you to find you? Except for I'm on Facebook. Now. You can find me. <laughs> <laughs> I keep it simple. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I have a website, um, and I'm always, I'm always happy to try to answer questions. So, Marie, thank you so much. Congratulations on this wonderful book. You have a huge fan in me, and um, love to spread the word. So I, I Likewise. <laughs> I will see you on the road in one of the places you're at. I, unfortunately, I won't be in LA on that date, but we're going to try to get some folks out there from um, the festival. Anyway, thank you. thank you so much, and, and best of luck with the next few tour dates. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Have a good <laughs> evening, a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so what I love about her is that she's, well, a wonderful writer, but she's also so kind and so she's so smart about what she's writing, even though I know that the writing is always a struggle. But there is some ways in which she accesses the right questions or Maybe it's the right principles, or maybe it's a combination of those things. Um, and then, and then she just gets it right. I really love this book. Where the dead pause and the Japanese say goodbye. I even blurbed it. <laughs> I really liked it that much. And so did Ruth Ozeki, and so did Gail Sukiyama, and so did Luis Alberto Urea, uh, all wonderful writers who I admire and love too. So I think you'll love it too. Go get your copy now. Support indie bookstores if you can. Uh, but it is everywhere, and uh, and don't miss out on it. All right. Our next show is actually not on Monday because we are celebrating MLK Day on the 19th. Our next show will be on the 21st, and we have a wonderful writer coming to be with us. It's Layla Lalami who wrote The Moore's Account. And I'm really excited to talk with her about this book and her writing. I met her years and years ago, right before she got published with her first book. Now she's come out with her third. So I'm excited to speak with her. Anyway, if you want to know more about upcoming shows, you can always go to the website for the podcast, www.themixedexperience.com. You can email me directly at Heidi at HeidiWDeroe.com and if you have show ideas, that'd be great. If you're interested in being a guest, email me as well. I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, keep mixing it up, folks. I can't wait to talk to you again. Bye-bye.